We're turning to Zechariah again. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and I've been blessed in my own heart on looking at different parts of it. And it's one of those little books that certainly needs a lot of thought and attention for it has much to say to us. So, Zechariah chapter 13, and we'll read together in this chapter. Zechariah chapter 13, and we'll read from verse 1. We welcome those as well who are online, and we trust God will be with you as you join with us for this time of Bible study. Verse 1 of Zechariah 13, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass on that day that the prophets shall be ashamed, every one of his vision, when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough coat, or sorry, a rough garment to deceive, but he shall say, I am no prophet, I am an husband man, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds on thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third part, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Amen. And we know that the Lord will bless the reading of these verses to our hearts. Now, I want to draw your attention today especially to verse number 7 of this passage I just read with you. It is one of those great messianic statements, prophecies, actually. It was fulfilled in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over in Matthew 26 and the verse number 31, we have the proof of that because there we read the Lord Himself saying, Matthew 26, 31, Then saith Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. And so those words are quoted by Christ as He approaches the cross, as He approaches all the sufferings that He is going to endure, and He quotes them here in the context of the scattering of the disciples and the uh, time that they had to pass through at this stage as he's now entering into Gethsemane uh, to suffer there. 
and then go on to the cross. And so, just explaining how the Lord uses them here, yet we see very clearly that as he quotes from them in this verse and applies them to his own situation, then we can be absolutely sure that the words going back here to Zechariah 13, the words here in their original setting are words that speak only of the Lord Jesus Christ and they reveal something of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the context in Zechariah, we can see very clearly that there are other references to the Lord's sufferings, and that's worthy of just noting here in passing. Look back into chapter 12 and verse number 10. Zechariah 12, 10, it says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. This is a prophecy, as you can see in verse 10, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, resulting in deep conviction and repentance from sin. And certainly this had fulfillment at Pentecost, because there was an outpouring of the Spirit, and the result was that people saw their sin, and especially the fact that their sin had brought about the sufferings and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, here are sinners depicted as mourning over the sin that caused the Lord's wounds and the Lord's sufferings. And so, there's a reference there to the sufferings of our Lord. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. It says, "...in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness." And while the focus here is on uh, the people of the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, yet the thought in that verse is very obvious, very clear. A fountain opened. For what reason? For sin and for uncleanness. In other words, to deal with sin, to deal with uncleanness. And of course, it's this verse that actually gave rise to that great old hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Because these words in verse 13 can't be understood in any any other way but a reference to the Savior's precious blood. Because it's only the blood of the Lord Jesus that cleanses from sin. No uh, No other remedy is found in the Scriptures in terms of washing and cleansing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, we can see how in the context of chapter 13 there is reference to the sufferings of our Lord. Now, if you go back into chapter 13, we we read through the whole chapter. I mean, I just say in passing, I'm not getting into this today for time's sake. I want to focus on verse 7. But may I say in passing that verse 6 is is often used as a reference to the Lord's hands been wounded. And I must say to you right now, that is not the case. That's not what that verse is about at all. It's to be understood in the context of false prophets and all that they did. Now, if you you read from uh, verse number 2 onwards through to verse number 6, you will notice that's a whole passage that stands together and runs together. And actually, what's in view in verse number 6 is 
the actions of false prophets who wounded themselves in their frenzies and in their uh, proclamation of false teaching. For example, you read of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings, and you will know the story there, how they cut themselves with knives and wounded themselves as they uh, called upon Baal to deliver them. And so that's what verse 6 is about. I want to say that in passing. If you want to talk to me on your own sometime, maybe someday I'll come back to that verse and look at it in its own context. But I know that very, very often, because of the, of the language, what are these wounds in thine hands received in the house of my friends? People immediately conclude that's Christ been wounded by the Jews, but it's not. And I'll say no more because I'll not get on to what I want to do here today. And so I just say that in passing. But verse 7 is the verse on which I want to focus here. Zechariah 13, verse 7. It's a text that in Zechariah's times pointed forward to the cross and to the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the only hope and remedy that there is for the salvation of the soul. Always keep in mind that when Zechariah wrote or any of these minor prophets wrote, they were writing for their own day first. And so what they're doing is they're addressing people who have come out of Babylon, they're returning from their captivity, they are encouraging them to look forward to the Messiah's first coming, what He will do when He comes the first time. And also, there's much in these minor prophets about the second coming of the Lord, especially this book of Zechariah. And so both comings are in view. But here, the coming that's in view in verse 7 is the first coming of the Lord when He would be made to suffer. And so Jehovah calls the one spoken of as the victim of these sufferings, my shepherd. Look at it, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. And so notice the very close association between Jehovah, because it is Jehovah who speaks, the Lord in capitals, the Lord of hosts, between Jehovah and one who is referred to as the shepherd in his sufferings and in all that is going to come upon him. And of course, the only person that can be is the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see that more and more as we go through this study on this verse now. And so there are three things I want to say from this verse, and they all relate to Christ, of course. Number one, the deity of Christ the shepherd. Jehovah refers here to Christ as the man that is my fellow. Now, there are two words on that little statement that are very, very important. The word man and the word fellow. And we must study those words and understand them because they are words that can only be used of one who possesses deity. And you know what deity is. It's that uh, word that we use to signify that a particular person is God. And, of course, we're talking about the trinity of divine persons when we use the word deity, because the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so just note that. That is a basic, fundamental truth of the whole gospel and the whole revelation of God. So, this shepherd is referred to under these terms, man and fellow. Now, I want to look at the word man. The original Hebrew word 
signifies mighty man. It designates a man of incredible strength, incredible power, indeed unlimited power. Now let me show you some verses that tie in with this. And many of you have learned the verse I want you to go to now. It's Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6. And you learned this verse maybe in Sunday school or wherever. It's a very well-known verse. It has to do with the incarnation of the Lord. Isaiah 9, verse number 6. And there the prophet makes this wonderful prediction, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. When I've preached in that verse, I've pointed out, and other men, of course, do so as well, that the child is born, but the son is given. That's very important. Christ the child, the man-child, born of Mary's substance, well, he's born, because the Lord was born, in the sense that anybody else is born, uh, with regard to the actual birth, not the conception, because the conception of the Lord's humanity was by the power of the Holy Spirit. But then it goes on to say, unto us a son is given, which means that the one who's termed son was already pre-existent before he came into the world. And that's very, very accurate language because the Lord is preserving here, yes, the humanity of, of, the, of, us, of the Savior, a child is born, and then a son is given. The eternal sonship of Christ is underlined by that expression. But that's not what I, want you to, I wanted you to see. Read on in the verse. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That means he will be a king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Sorry, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Now there is the one I want you to notice. It goes on to say, The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The phrase, the Mighty God, signifies God as the defender or the guardian. That's the sense of the word mighty and the full name here, Mighty God. Someone who, as God, is our defender, He is our guardian. And brethren and sisters, how true that is. We have a, a wonderful guardian, a wonderful defender in our Lord Jesus Christ, and of course, in all three persons of the Godhead. But He, Christ, is specifically in view here in this verse. But He is our he is our defender. He is our guardian. And that's the sense of that expression in Isaiah 9, verse 6, the mighty God. And so, one of the titles that we can see being used to describe the Son to be born, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is this word mighty God. Now, here's the fascinating thing. The Hebrew word for mighty God or the, for the word mighty in that full name, mighty God. The Hebrew word for mighty is the very same word just about in terms of, uh, of, of nature of the word and the etymology of the word. It's the same word as we have in Zechariah 13, verse 7, where the Lord says concerning the shepherd, the man. The word for man is a word that, as I said, signifies mighty man. And the same word is used here in this phrase, mighty God, who is the defender and the guardian of His people. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and look at uh, verse number 17. We find the word there. 
Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. I notice that language because you will know very well that that kind of language is used in the New Testament of our Savior. That the phrase or the epithet there, Lord of lords. You'll read of Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. So, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. A great God, now here you have it, a mighty, a mighty. It's the same word. And so we find the word used again of one who is God, one who possesses deity. And it's the same word, remember, as in Zechariah 13, verse 7. Another reference is in Isaiah chapter 10. So turn back to Isaiah, please, and to chapter 10 and the verses 20 and 21, just to show you these Scriptures and keep them in mind. Mark them in your own Bible or on a notepad or whatever, because they are very important verses. So, they're verses that use the same Hebrew word, mighty. And so, here is Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. It says, It shall come to pass on that day that the remnant of Israel, and such as are escaped to the house of Jacob, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. And again, the word mighty is used. It's used in combination with the name God. And you can see, therefore, the sense of it coming out. But the final reference in this particular matter, is Jeremiah chapter 32 and the verse 18. Jeremiah 32, 18. It's not a matter of just uh, combing through verses uh, to, to read them. It's a matter of seeing how a word is used. That's one of the ways in which you study your Bible. You get a word that maybe strikes you and you look it up and you follow it through and you find how it is used. So, Jeremiah 32, 18. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is His name. And so again, we find this same word used in relation to the one who is the true and the living God. So, Long before Zechariah's day, this is how we think through this, long before Zechariah's day, this designation, using the word mighty, became a dominant part of, of messianic uh, vocabulary, the vocabulary of the Bible. All these verses, Deuteronomy 10, 17, Isaiah 10, 20 and 21, Jeremiah 32, 18, along with Isaiah 9, verse 6. That's what I mean by the vocabulary of the Word of God, the, the messianic vocabulary, because it's speaking of Christ, it's pointing to Christ, it uses the word mighty. It's also messianic theology, because what we're finding is the Old Testament establishes the theological fact that the Messiah would be God, that He would be the one who is called the Mighty One, or the Mighty Man, as we have it there, and therefore He would actually be God. There's one final reference that I want you to see, Psalm 45, the Psalm number 45, and you will know that there's a section, well, let me say, first of all, that all the Psalms 
point us to Jesus Christ like all Scripture does. And there are some Psalms that are set apart on their own, and they're called the Messianic Psalms. And Psalm 45 is one of them. It is plainly a Messianic Psalm the whole way through. I know it was written uh, by David and so on, and it may have some connection with his own experiences, but you can't read this psalm and see anyone really but the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Psalm 45, notice what it says in verse 3, "'Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty.'" And so, when you have those words, so clearly in a messianic psalm, there is in verse 3, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O thou most, o, o, o most mighty. There you have a prayer to Christ. The believer calling on the Lord to gird on his sword, to go against his enemies, to overthrow them, to conquer and so forth. That's the sense of Psalm 45. It's a psalm of the King. It's a psalm of Christ in relation to his victory and his triumph over evil men, over evil forces. And the church prays, Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty. And so, when Zechariah wrote of Jehovah's shepherd, turning back now please to Zechariah 13, when he wrote of Jehovah's shepherd, he employed this Hebrew noun that underlines his deity. It says there, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, the mighty man, that's what it means, who is my fellow. So that takes us on to the next word, the word fellow. Because the word fellow signifies a companion. It signifies someone who is an associate of the closest kind, someone who is a confidant. All those words can be used uh, in translating and in understanding the Hebrew word for fellow. But it also is a word that signifies one who is a person's equal. And that's the thing to, that's the point to notice. What I'm saying is, verse 7 is Jehovah speaking. And he's speaking of a shepherd who's going to suffer. First of all, he refers to him as the mighty man. And we've seen how that word is so clearly associated with deity and points to God. And so then we come to the word fellow, and here is Jehovah actually referring to this shepherd and calling him my fellow. Read it this way, my equal, my equal. And that's a wonderful, wonderful discovery, if I can put it that way, just to understand the meaning of that word. And what I'm saying is it would be very, very inappropriate for Jehovah to apply the word that means my equal to a mere mortal, to a mere man. Oh yes, he's referred to as man, and we'll come back to that in a moment or two. But he is not a mere man like you or me. I mean a mere human being. He's not that. He's more than that. And this word fellow really brings it out, because in this verse the word fellow signifies one who is equal with Jehovah. And that can only be deity that's in view. And so, this is what I mean by the theology that you find coming out in the Old Testament Scriptures. 
with reference to the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, we need to know our theology. When I use the word theology, don't be put off by it. It's not an uncommon word. It simply means the study of God. And that's what the Bible's about to such a degree, the study of God. The Bible is God's self-revelation given to us that we might study Him or that we might come to know Him or that we might understand something of Him. Of course, it's impossible for you or me to understand the Lord altogether because He's infinite and you can't understand infinity. But God is knowable. He's revealed enough to us so that we might know Him. Oh, how wonderful it is to know God. That should thrill our hearts. There are people out there in the world at large, in nations on this earth, and they're groveling in their darkness, and they're tracing things through in their pagan beliefs, and they remain in even deeper darkness when they've finished. Because in that direction in which they go and in which they look, they will never find the true God. The true God is revealed through His uh, special self-revelation that is, of course, the Bible itself. And so, here is someone who is Jehovah's fellow. And that's very much the same as you find in John 1 verse 1. You may know that verse, and it's a wonderful verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John 1, on into verse, verse 1 and verse 2. Now, that expression, the Word was with God, literally means or reads in the original language, the Word was face to face with God. And it's talking about eternity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was there at the beginning. The Word pre-existed before the beginning came about, the beginning of creation and time. The Word was already there because the Word is eternal. It's one of the names for Christ. It's only applied to Christ. And there we're finding in John 1 verse 1 that you have the eternal Word who came into time and into history to reveal God to us. And therefore, the, 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 the little phrase, the little part of the verse that I focus on and John 1, 1 is, the Word was face to face with God. When you think about that, face to face with God, that means that He is distinct as a person, and yet He is God. And you're taking their men and women into the mystery of the Trinity. And I've often said this, and we must be very careful with the doctrine of the Trinity, because you can't understand infinite and supernatural truths like this. But the point is the Bible reveals that in the Godhead, yes, there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And in John 1 verse 1, you've got two of them in view. The Word, that's one person, was with God. That's another person, but face to face with Him. There's the intimacy, there's the closeness, there's the equality coming out between the Word and God. Or Proverbs 8 verse 30, that great passage where you have wisdom speaking, 
And remember that Christ is the wisdom of God. And so in Proverbs 8 verse 30, wisdom says this, I was by him as one brought up with him. And so there's a thought again there of of association and closeness and equality. I was by him as one brought up with him. And so there's language there that points us to this same truth that we're seeing in Zechariah 13, verse 7, in this word, fellow. Proverbs 8, 30 is speaking of one who's an associate, one with whom there's communion in unbroken fellowship, brought up with him, and so on, his fellow, his confidant in the great counsels of eternity. And so, what I show you, turning back to Zechariah 13, is very, very clear. Awake, O sword. And this is the wonderful thing. This is the marvelous thing. The one, of whom, the one against whom Jehovah's sword awoke was the mighty man. And remember, that shows us deity, the word mighty. And then Jehovah's fellow, his confidant, his associate, one who was his equal. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Jehovah's equal, one with Him in substance or essence, equal in power and glory. Have you memory of your shorter catechism? What is God? God is a spirit, and so on. Then it goes on to say uh, about the three persons in the Godhead. And it says that they're equal in substance and power and in glory. And so, our catechism is simply uh, putting together in a very succinct form what we need to know about God in His three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And so, this person here in Zechariah 13, 7 is equal with Jehovah, one with Him. The reference, therefore, by Jehovah to His fellow it conforms to what you call Trinitarian theology. I want you to see that. This can't be understood any other way. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. And so the whole way through, there's the thought of association and oneness and equality. And yet one person is speaking of the next. Jehovah of his shepherd, his fellow, this mighty man, And there's Trinitarian theology. As we saw it in John 1 verse 1, Christ and the Father are distinct in person, yet one in essence. And we really can go no farther with that. But the Bible reveals this. This is where the cults go completely wrong. I had one of them come to my door just a few weeks ago, um, I, I think he, he called himself a Jehovah's Witness. But I've had some of them come to the door before when I lived here at the manse and now where we live. And they, they are totally blind and their minds shut to truth. And no matter what I said to that man, take them to the Scriptures, he did not want to hear. He would not listen. And Uh, yet the Bible sets before us in Scriptures like these, and there are multitudes of these verses throughout the Word of God, this wonderful fact of divine persons, three of them. One is called the Father, one is called the Son, one is called the Spirit. You find as you study the Word of God, 
that the Father creates, the Son creates, the Spirit creates, that each of them resurrects, that each of them is omnipotent, omnipotent and omniscient. That all is as clear as can be in the Word of God. What is it saying to you? Just like this verse, it's saying to you and me today that there are, there's a plurality of persons in the Godhead, and they are equal in substance, and they are one with the other, and yet one of those persons took our humanity and died for our sins. And that's where we're coming to now, because uh, looking again at this verse, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. And so, Jehovah speaks of the shepherd here. Yes, the word means mighty man, and we have seen the sense of that. And yet, he was a true man. The original Hebrew word as we have seen uh, has a special significance. And yet, at the same time, it does emphasize and guard the real humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jehovah's shepherd is a man. And he is, of course, the God-man. And how often you've heard that, that word, that combination of titles brought together, God-man. And that is the way to put it, because he is God-man. God and man with two distinct natures in the one person forever. And so, we, we certainly see the humanity of Christ the shepherd as well as the deity of Christ the shepherd. You see, it's a great heresy to assert that Christ's humanity was not real, that His humanity was different from ours. That's what some teach, that the Lord's humanity was not actually the same as our humanity. There are those who will say that the Lord's humanity came down from heaven. That is not right. What came down from heaven was Christ the eternal Son in His deity, and the humanity that was formed in the womb of Mary by the miracle of the miraculous conception is what the Lord Jesus took on to Himself. That humanity that He took from Mary's womb did not exist before in relation to Christ. It was not something that was up in heaven that then came down and so on. That's what even some evangelical people will teach. And it's wrong completely and utterly wrong. Uh, it leads to heresy. It is heresy, actually. And it leads to confusion about the whole matter of redemption. And I'll explain that in a moment or two. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, stated that if we imagine that his, that is Christ's manhood, was not the same as ours then, and now I quote his words, then you cannot sympathize with Him. And the next thing will be that you cannot love Him, and that you cannot trust Him, and that you cannot come on to Him and have fellowship with Him. In other words, he's saying, if you deny the true humanity of the Lord, then all these things are closed out. You can't love Him. You cannot trust Him. You cannot come to Him. You can't have fellowship with Him because He doesn't have, according to some, the same humanity as you. And then Spurgeon says this, Believe that He was on all points such as you are with the exception of sin. Now, that is vital. Why is it so vital? that we believe in the real humanity of Christ. 
because God's law demanded that man who had broken his law should also satisfy that law and vindicate that law. I want you to get a hold of that statement. That is how we come to terms of this great fact that our Savior must be truly man as well as being God. And I repeat the statement, God's law demanded that man who had broken the law should also satisfy and vindicate that law. Do you think about that statement? What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. How will satisfaction be given unto the one whose law we have broken? And the answer is through death, which includes eternal death. And so we take our minds then to those who are lost. And it's horrible in terms of of those who are presently lost, where they are and what they're experiencing. But we must see this. People who are lost, what are they doing in hell where they presently are? They are paying for their violation of God's law. And the extension of that is Hell is eternal because they have broken the law of an eternal God and therefore it requires eternal punishment for the satisfaction of that law. Everything's joined together. There is a hell. It is not remedial. It's not designed to make people better. There's no second chance. There's no coming out of it. It's eternal because sin, which is the transgression of the law, has broken the law of he who is eternal and therefore requires eternal punishment. So, what about those in heaven? Why are they there? How did they get there? On what basis did they or do they get there? Those are vital questions. And you will, uh, many of you will know that the awful silly nonsense that's talked about uh, has gone over today at funerals and so on, or even in church services, about why or how you get to heaven and, and, uh, and all of this, uh, the, these realms of things. And it will be said that, well, people go to heaven because they've done this and they've done that. Or people go to heaven because God loves everybody and wouldn't close anybody out of heaven. All of these things are said. Let me tell you, my friend, here's the real answer. Here's the biblical answer. Not because I say it, because the Bible teaches us this. Here's the true answer. People go to heaven because Jesus Christ became man. And as the God-man, He satisfied the law on our behalf. And because the law is satisfied, then sinners enter heaven. That is, those who rest in Christ, trust in Christ, they enter heaven because the law is satisfied on their behalf. And you see, that's what Christ the second or the last Adam came to do. I use the language of 1 Corinthians 15, 45. In that one verse, you've got 
two representative men. It says the first Adam and then the last Adam. The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam, a quickening spirit. What has been said there? Simply this. The first man, Adam, when he came into the world, was made a living soul, and he failed. He fell, he sinned. But the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, came, and he's made a quickening spirit in the sense that he obtained life for us. But he obtained life for us to quicken us only because he died for us and satisfied the law for us. And remember that he's called the last Adam because what he did is finished. And there's nobody else coming along now to either do the same work or something else. And you see, that's what every false gospel presents. Oh, there's another person who's, who's needed because Christ didn't succeed or Christ's work was imperfect. That's what they're saying. And therefore, for you to be saved or for you to have eternal life, somebody else has to do something. Uh, either you yourself or some person uh, or whatever it might be has to do something else so that you will be right with God. My dear friend, that is at the heart of every false religion. All pagan religions, Romanism, which is not, and I say this again this morning, Romanism is not true Christianity at all. It's a counterfeit. It's a deception. Because in the place of Christ, or alongside of Christ, they put the priest, they put the pope, they put the mass, they put penance, they put all that paraphernalia, because they're telling the Roman Catholic individual, you can't be saved unless of this and this and this, and they're really saying the work of Christ is not enough. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is the work of Christ is enough. Why? Because He is deity and He is humanity. That's what Zechariah's verse here says to us. That's what Jehovah says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And who is a shepherd? The man that's my fellow. And so He is both God and man. He is deity. He has humanity. And so we've looked at that, the deity of Christ and the, or the shepherd and the humanity of the shepherd, but then in closing, just a word or two about the suffering of the shepherd. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow. Then it says, Smite the shepherd. And there's the cross, men and women. There's Calvary. There's the shepherd who speaks himself in John 10 and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth us life for the sheep. And there's the sword mentioned here. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who's my fellow. Smite the shepherd and so on. And notice what it says. Awake, O sword. As it were, there's the summoning of the sword here. The word awake can be translated up and about. In other words, it's as it's calling on the sword of Jehovah to leave its scabbard and thrust the shepherd, thrust him through. And we can't see that any other way, but what happened at Calvary when God the Father brought down His wrath upon His Son and smote Him. 
And the sword of wrath plunged into the shepherd and brought about all his suffering. And, or, or we could put it another way, the, uh, the, the very epitome of his suffering came at the cross. He suffered all his life long, all the miseries of this life, all the rejection of men, all the persecution. He suffered it all, but when he went to the cross, it was the peak. That's when the sword awoke and smote the shepherd. And then there is, of course, not only the summoning of that wrath, but the suffering that comes. It says, Jehovah Christ, smite the shepherd. Reminds you of Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And so there is this suffering of divine wrath. The Father does smite the Son according to the Word of God. But you see, it's substitutionary. The shepherd is smitten, not the sheep. That's the wonder of it, isn't it? Sinners are the sheep. Who deserves the suffering? Who should be smitten? The sheep. Not the shepherd. Because the shepherd is without sin. But ah, he is a sin-bearer as well as a substitute, and of course, in being the substitute, He did take our sin, and we know that from so many verses in Scripture. And the glorious thing is, that suffering is enough. That's what I said a little while ago. This is why anybody goes to heaven, is because what Christ did is enough. The old hymn says, it is enough that Jesus died, and that He died for me. Now, if you look at this verse, notice the final words. It says, And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. The term there, little ones, is a, a term of fondness and endearment. It includes the, the helplessness of those who are the Lord's people. And so what Jehovah is saying here is, he says, he says here, I took my hand, I reached for the sword of wrath, I smote the shepherd, then I turned to the sheep and my little ones to save them, to gather them in, to deliver them. That's what happens, you see. The sheep are scattered uh, across the face of the earth, they're persecuted, they are reviled, and that's happening more and more and more. And the Lord's little ones are despised, but as a result of Jesus Christ's suffering, Jehovah turns His attention then to the beneficiaries of that suffering, and He reaches out His hand to save them and deliver them and rescue them. You just think about your conversion that way. Whenever that may have taken place, whenever you, the Lord saved you, what was going on? It was Jehovah who had smitten the shepherd reaching out then to gather in you, one of His sheep, one of His little ones, to rescue you, to make you His own, to save you from your sins. And so, what a verse this is, and what tremendous truths are in it, and I trust that the Lord will bless it to your hearts, and we'll bow together. The time is gone, and let's just have this Class, and I brought to a close. Father in heaven, we bow before Thee, and we thank Thee for Thy Word that we have considered. This day we rejoice in what we have seen and what has been 
brought before us. We rejoice in Christ, the one who is both God and man. O Lord, we think of this, that you took your sword of wrath and you smote the one who was equal with thee, your confidant, your, uh, the one who was with thee from all eternity, but you smote him for our sakes. And he died in our place, and he suffered as the shepherd for the sheep. And we rejoice, O Lord, that he rose again, and he ascended up in all the victory of the cross and the triumph of the atonement. And he is at thy right hand, a prince and a saviour. Lord, hear us for his sake. Be with us now in the prayer meeting, uh, before the service, in the service itself. Come down in power and visit us this day with a breath from heaven and grant us your grace and your mercy. And use thy servant, or brother Glenn, who will bring the word in the morning meeting. And may we know thy power and thy glory. We ask this all for Jesus' sake, for his eternal praise. Amen.